Welcome to The Struggle is Real, a podcast by Family Bridges for modern parenting. Check out this week's episode. Oh, you're not a kid, huh? Well, then maybe you should pay their rent, huh? Fine. Really? Raul, we're all climbing this hill. Yeah. What for? Because the shepherd told us to. Yeah. What for? The Struggle is Real podcast starts in three, two, one. And hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of The Struggle is Real. I am one of your hosts, Omar Ramos, along with... Veronica Avila, and of course, our resident expert, Dr. Alicia Laos. Welcome, everyone. So uh, listen up. Today's episode will help you get tough when you need to. We've named it Braving Tough Love. It's a good one, so please take notes. We've invited Dr. <laughs> Kelly Flanagan, clinical psychologist and co-founder of Artisan Clinical Associates in Naperville, Illinois. He's also a writer on his blog, Untangled, and author of Lovable, Embracing What is Truest About You. Welcome back, Dr. Kelly. It's great to have you back. Thank you. It's great to be back. Awesome. So, tough love. I'd like to pitch that question to each and every one of you. What does that mean to you? Because obviously everybody's got their own perception about it. I'm going to pitch it out to you, Veronica. Oh, well, I guess when it comes to kids, I see it as sometimes you have to keep it real, real, even if it hurts them a little bit. Like, for instance, if you don't let them do something, it's for their own good. It's not because you don't love them. It's because it's the best for them. Yeah. At least that's how I view it. I don't know. How about you? Well, you know, the way that I interpret it, it's... When you're in a relationship and it just goes the wrong way, but you're in love with a person, but it becomes very toxic. It's one of those situations where you know you need to get away, but it's so hard to get away because you're attached to that person in many different aspects, especially sentimentally. So that's always been like my definition for tough love. Hmm. That's interesting. Doctor. Yeah, that's a good one. I, I think because you love either your family or your kids or others, you sometimes withhold things from them withhold things or create some more timing based on what that might be and because you know at the end patience and perseverance and those kinds of things are the character that you would like to see in them honesty and so in the pursuit of building that character you may either withhold or have them wait for things. Dr. Kelly how about you? Yeah it's a it's a great question and I, I think that I mean we live in a time when we are more aware than ever of our effects on our kids emotions mm -hmm. so I think the idea of tough love we get a little bit uneasy about so I think it's important to think about being tough on we can be tough on kids behaviors while at the same time being tender with their hearts mm -hmm. um, the toughness on their behavior if it's needed will be most effective if it's delivered while being tender with their hearts both of those things in tension together um, I think is how tough love works the best. Yes, yes. And going back to what Dr. Lau, what you were just saying right now, when you said it that way, it kind of sparked something because also tough love on, on yourself. Yesterday, I had the opportunity to read a few stories for a project that we have. Most of them were so sad, but I was reading through them and one of them had a very great learning experience, I guess. And it was the tough love that this person had on herself because she says she bought something on impulse. She got into a big argument with her husband and it caused like a financial hardship, etc. One of those things where you decide something on impulse and then it just trickles down to do, 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 do. But then she says, at the end, I learned that I have to wait because it is worth the wait. And when you said that, it just triggered. Yes. Sometimes we also have to be tough on ourselves because at the end, <laughs> it'll be for the best. Yeah. I keep thinking love is patient. Love yeah. is kind. Yes. Yeah. Well, let's go into our first sketch. Why don't we do that? It's called... Parenting. All right. 
Looks like everyone's been eating. How's everybody's food? Oh, it's great. Thank you. Well, let me know if you need anything else. So, Reggie, you haven't mentioned anything about how school was today. Oh, uh, it, it was good. Well, what'd you learn? Nothing. Eight hours in that building and they didn't teach you anything? Oh, uh, I don't know. Electrons, branches of government, whatever. Didn't you get your report card today? Oh, uh... Aw, oh, now come on, Reggie. They sent me an email to the parents. I know you got your report card. Fine. Oh, Reggie. These marks are awful. What's going on? School's stupid. No, school's smart. It's supposed to make you smart, too. Not me. Reggie? I don't even need school. Einstein didn't go to school. That is not true. Well, Steve Jobs didn't either. Well, you've got to try hard. you got to try a little harder at school, honey. Why? It's stupid. Because school prepares you for life. Life is better than school. Oh, look, you know it is your job as a kid, right? I'm not a kid. Oh, you're not a kid, huh? Well, then, maybe you should pay the rent, huh? Fine. Really? Okay, well then, you're going to pay about $400 a month, plus your share of utilities, and that includes TV as well. Fine, I'll get a job. And then, okay, well then I won't be driving you around, so you'll need to spend a lot of money on taxis. I've got a bike. Well, good luck taking that on the freeway then. Oh, oh, and your cell phone. Now that costs about $80 a month. Fine, my new job will pay for it. Really? <laughs> okay, all right, well then, I, well, I'm not going to be cooking for you anymore, and so that is about $150 a month on groceries. I'll just eat PB&Js. My groceries will be like $8. Hmm, well, that will keep you growing. <laughs> ah, which reminds me, you don't have to pay me back for the clothes you have on now, but you're going to need new clothes soon, so uh, you are a growing boy. <laughs> I'll just wear these. I don't need fashion. Hmm, <gasps> well, well. Health insurance. That will be about $150 a month as long as the premium doesn't go up, okay? <laughs> sure. Great. Thanks for dinner, then. What do you mean? Oh, I am so proud of how grown up you are. And I'm so excited to be roommates. Heads up, though, I'm not very clean, but you can always hire a maid. <laughs> well, I'll see you at our place. Oh, waiter, my son says he's picking up the tab. Oh, hey, sir. So, uh, would you like to pay with cash or credit card? Um, or will you be doing the dishes? Want to buy a backpack? No. All right, well, that was an interesting conversation between Catherine and her teen son, Bobby. She's a single mom, and he's not doing well in school and doesn't seem to care about bringing up his grades, doctor. The conversation goes south, ending in him saying that he'll work instead of going to school. Then mom starts kind of getting real about expenses, and then the whole thing just ends with him having to pay the dinner bill there. What's going on here, Dr. Laos? I think that we've seen this dynamic happen lots of times, mm -hmm. where the mom is trying to hold the son accountable for school. And at first she's worried, but he's indifferent. His heart is not in it, mm -hmm. you know, for whatever reason. We don't know because the mom didn't take the time to explore. She was just trying to establish the accountability for him going to school. Well, the more she pushed, the more spiteful she became and mm -hmm. angry because he dug his heels even further and got more indifferent. So seeing that it was not going well, then she pulled the, I guess maybe quote unquote, this is the tough love kind uh -huh. of teaching moment. Mm -hmm. And now you're going to, you're going to be responsible for this food and I'm going to show it to you so you can kind of be real. 
See, it just ended wrong. <laughs> um, and so, but how many times has that happened where one person, mom, dad, you know, as a parent or spouses, mm -hmm. you're really worried about something, you're concerned, you bring it up and as you're bringing it up, maybe the way you bring it up is kind of a judgmental, condescending or mm -hmm. nagging kind of a tone, which instead of it producing what you want it to produce, is, which is for them to respond and follow through, what it produces is in them is more defensiveness or just stonewalling, really not engaging. And then as they not engage, instead of it encouraging you, you get more discouraged and frustrated. And so then you pull in more anger spouts, which then produces in the other more frustration <laughs> so, and they just dig their heels. So that little system, it's not working. The little dance is not working no. and we need to do dance. Um, otherwise, then you pull the tough love bar of discipline in this mm -hmm. case and mm. it just comes off it seems like genuine well, you know? like well I'm, you're gonna do this well I'm gonna do this and she's a mom yeah they're like a competition going yeah. on yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. now I'd like to uh, pick on uh, Dr. Kelly's thoughts here we all know that teens are tough or at least they think they are I mean we were teens yeah. once right and felt invincible right. and mm -hmm. grown enough to do adult things without knowing the responsibilities that they entail Dr. Kelly how do we help our kids stay encouraged to do well in school and not jump into adult decisions or, or just kind of press on the brakes and just enjoy being a kid. Right. I think you, you asked earlier, Alicia, how many times does this happen? And it's happened at least a dozen times in my house this year. I think of it as like consequence escalation and, you know, oh, well, then I take your phone away for a day. Okay, that doesn't do it. Then a week, you know, mm -hmm. and what's happening is really it's a power struggle. This yeah. disguise is tough love. What your kid is essentially communicating to you is you don't have control over me. Those consequences can't, can't influence me. So that's why you see that escalation and frustration growing. So I think one of the most important things we can do, particularly with our teenagers, is to start the conversation right out front, acknowledging I don't have any control over you. You're grown. I can't pick you up and put you back in time out anymore. <laughs> I can't send you to bed without food. Uh, you're going to be gone all day tomorrow. You can, you know, mooch food off of kids in the cafeteria even. I mean, I really have almost no control over you. So what is our relationship going to look like now, now that I really ultimately don't have any control over you. It makes me think of, it was, I think it was just last May, my son was still, oh, he just turned 14. I had sort of had this uh, revelation and I, I took him out of school for lunch. We went to Jimmy John's because when they feed a kid food they love, they're always more receptive. Mm -hmm. I sat him down and I said, you know, something occurred to me, Aiden. I said, I just realized that about 80% of what I've been nagging you about for the last two years has changed 0%. And mm -hmm. so I'm not going to nag you about those things anymore. That would be insane for me to continue to try to change things about you that you've decided you're not going to change. And it actually led to this really fruitful conversation where he actually had a moment of panic and he said, well, wait, wait, I, I do want you to nag me about that. <laughs> and I do want you to nag me about that. <laughs> but I was putting him in control of what I nag him about. Right. Mm. You know, just this morning, as a matter of fact, he came upstairs and he said, oh, hey, dad, I forgot to have you sign a permission slip for a field trip. And I go, oh, thanks for telling me that. But he goes, well, I'm telling you it so that when I forget it now, you'll remind me before I walk out the door. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So, so again, a kind of taking responsibility for his own life because we're giving him some control over where he does that. And with teenagers, 
again, 99% of the conflict that you're having with teenagers usually boils down to a sense of control. And we want to be in that conflict with them because we want them to be individuating. We want them to be developing a sense of autonomy and of freedom. Now, they're going to overreach every time, right? Mm-hmm. You're still paying their bills, you're, you know, and so there's a part of you that goes, oh, gosh, you're just not grateful and I ought to have more influence over you. But doing that dance of control and autonomy with our teenagers and openly doing it, discussing it, uh, mm-hmm. verbalizing it, identifying it. I think that's the key. I love what you're saying. Um, lots of things of what you're saying is great. One is you need a little bit of that self check-in and that self-awareness as a parent to recognize that that dance that you're doing is unhealthy. And, and then you go back and you go, okay, let me have this conversation. I also really like thinking about it developmentally in the sense that, you know, as kids, you pick up your children, like you said, sometimes, and you put them in timeout when they're elementary age, preschool age, those things are appropriate. And sometimes I wonder if we have a challenge as a parent to transition over into the adolescent periods where that control piece does pick up some more. And so just being able to recognize that the operational or the concrete type Uh of consequences that kids, when they're younger, work, that same style may not necessarily work or just won't work as an adolescent. Yeah, and I think that's the, the tension too, is that their growing desire for autonomy, it just, it sets in a little bit sooner than they actually have the resources to be mm-hmm. autonomous. Mm-hmm. And in that sort of gray zone is where you see a lot of the conflict between parents and teenagers. And so it's, it's about really sort of working through that gray zone and getting them to the point where they do have the resources to have full autonomy. Yeah, I also like the third piece in there, and that's just thinking about the skit again and how the mom pulled the trigger, the trick, you know, mm-hmm. or whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. that little, her toolbox of, yes. you know, let me threaten you with this. That sometimes those kinds of scenarios, it's not that it's wrong to teach your children to have that sense of independence in terms of finances. Mm-hmm. That's a teaching moment. But if it's different here because it felt like it was blackmailing, you know? Yes. Yeah. Um, whereas mm-hmm. if you're introducing it across their developmental stage in terms of learning how to manage finances and being responsible, that's a teaching moment. So as parents, we want to teach. We don't want to always fall into bribing. I know we like bribing sometimes because we're just exhausted. That's <laughs> but, it. No more Wendy's for you, no. But, but you know what? Uh, taking it, that into consideration, I actually, in my house, I know talking about life realities and the, and the finances, I know I like to keep it real with my kids as far as the budget goes because it's just mom there, right? So, well, dad too, but they always want more than we can get and it's not always a possibility. So I don't know if, if this is right or wrong or what, but I like to keep it real. This is what we can afford and this is, okay, maybe that's nice, but maybe in a month or two months, but not now. Am I giving them too much information too early? I know I've had people in my family, don't talk don't, to your kids about I, money, I, but I, I have to. Yeah. I actually, I had, uh, I learned this from some clients a while back. They had like six kids. They had developed a routine with their kids that when one of the kids turned 16, for that entire year of their life, they sat down with the parents and paid all of the bills. So that when they came to mom and dad and said, um, hey, can I have this? And the you know parents could look back at the kid and say, you tell me where we're going to get that money. You know our finances. And so I think, I mean, I think what we're doing is we're honoring our kids by saying, we think you're mature enough to handle this information. We think you're mature enough to be a part of it. My son is 14. He just uh, earned his first taxable wages this year. And so we're going to sit down and he's going to, I'm going to guide him through it, but he's going to do his own taxes. Right. Cool. Uh, and then we're going to we're going to have a conversation about taxes and how they work and how they affect our family as a whole. And mm-hmm. so I don't I don't know that it's if there's a lot of anxiety in the family about money. 
I think you want to sort of protect your kids from that anxiety. They have enough of their own anxiety. Mm -hmm. But in terms of the practical realities and helping them understand the way that finances work in the world, I, I don't know if it's ever too early to help them yeah. begin developmentally appropriately understand how that works. I wonder know? if as a society we're actually doing harm and that's why there's so much debt per household later on because it's not being introduced to something. And so then, you know, you go out, you turn 18, you go and then, you know, you get in debt and then they don't know how to manage exactly. because it hasn't been introduced at all. And then all of a sudden you have to pay bills Absolutely. later on, <laughs> you know, I, and I agree. Um, there's just so many little systems in place that you can play with to teach your kids. I, I went and got, they had been collecting coins in the piggy bank. We went, mm -hmm. got the coin wrappers, they wrapped it up, they put it in three jars, giving, spending, mm -hmm. and saving. And, you know, then we go to the bank and deposit it. And then, you know, just, there's so many things you can do with kids concretely yeah. to help them kind of, you know, work towards understanding finances. The same couple that gave me the idea, I've been so indebted to them because another idea that they gave me was um, once their kids turned 18, um, if they weren't in school, if they were working and they were expected to work if they lived at home, they would gradually increase the amount of basically rent and um, mm -hmm. other expenses related to contributing to the family household. They would gradually increase the monthly amount that the kids were expected to contribute mm. to the point where that amount would become you know, the kid would look at it and go, I could be living on my own and contributing so much each month. Mm -hmm. But they were also doing something else, which is they were taking that amount given each month and they were putting it in a savings account for the kid so that when the kid was then ready to, to launch, that kid could use that money for a first and last month's rent nice. or for a car or something like that. So the message was clear. We're for you right? We're doing this for you, but we're also going to increase the discomfort of being in the safe nest of home mm -hmm. so that at some point you'll be in, motivated to leave, even if you're not finding that motivation intrinsically. So I fully plan to do that with my kids when they get to that point. <laughs> <laughs> do you guys remember paying rent or something or contributing to your house? Well, not necessarily mm -hmm. like legal tenders and opening my <laughs> wallet and all that good stuff. Here and there, my dad would give me 10, 5, 20 bucks, whatever, however he felt. But the way that I contributed to the family, mm -hmm. uh, the value that I gave to the family was working out in the fields, collaborating. That was mm -hmm. my way of paying because my parents would be like, well, you don't have no immediate uh, responsibilities or you don't have a car. So we need you to help us out by using yourself as a farm worker out in the orchard. So that was the way that I kind of collaborated and gave back to my family. Hmm. I did as soon as I started yeah. working. I paid a phone bill and then I paid some bill insurance for the car, you know, yeah. whatever little thing. Great practice, yeah, yeah especially yeah. when you start fairly mm -hmm. young. So that's mm -hmm. something that I'm also thinking about. There was this article that I read, and I can't think of it right now, but uh, yeah, it, it has something to do with what we were just talking about right now, how we can develop our kids into being financially smart at a very young age. But moving forward, ladies and gents, we're going to jump into our next scenario. Fascinating conversation, by the way. Okay, it's called What the Flock? Huh. Ronald. Hey, Ronald. Hey, Raul. Beautiful day, isn't it? It's not bad, but I am thirsty. You have any idea where we're all going? I'm following the shepherd. Right, right. But where's the shepherd going? Hmm. Must be taking us somewhere over this hill because we're climbing this hill. Aren't you tired? I mean, we've been grazing all day, and now he's trying to take us over this hill? We'll probably rest after we get over it. That grass we ate earlier was really energizing. Yeah, you must have gotten the good grass. Over on my section, I just ate a bunch of crabgrass. Ooh, gourmet! No, it's more like crap. Anyway, what's over this hill? I don't know. Wait... 
You don't know? The shepherd knows. How does the shepherd know? I don't know. So we're just following this guy? Just because he's got a stick? It's called a staff. I know what it's called. Following a shepherd up a hill to nowhere. Well, I'm not doing it. Hey, what are you doing? I'm sitting. My legs are tired, and I'm not following some stupid shepherd up some stupid hill. Hey, man, you're causing a traffic jam. Get moving. Go around. Who does this guy think he is? Somebody call the sheepdog. I'm not following you up this hill like a sheep. You are a sheep. It's an expression. Oh, man, here comes the sheepdog. Hey, Raul. Ronald? Hey, Ricky. Looks like you're causing a little traffic jam, guys. Sorry, Ricky. Raul doesn't want to climb the hill. Raul, is that true? Yeah, whatever. Raul, we're all climbing this hill. Yeah, what for? Because the shepherd told us to. Yeah, what for? Well, you know how he led us to food earlier? And we ate that really good grass? Good grass. Maybe for you, I only got crabgrass. Ooh, gourmet! What is your point about the grass? Well, I I bet that over that hill is some water to wash it down. You like water, don't you? Hey, he was just saying that he's thirsty. Quit talking for me. Down in front, move it. Go around. Come on, Raul. If you're not doing it for yourself, do it for us. Why? Don't I wait here and you bring me back water? We've all got to go together, or not at all. Also, I can't hold things because I don't have hands. Uh-oh. What? Here comes the shepherd. Oh man. Hello, little one. Having a little trouble on your feet today? Well, I've got you. What's happening? Looks like the shepherd's going to carry you. Wait, no. I don't... Uh, uh, I, well, hey. This is kind of nice. Hey, wait. I see water. Water. Up ahead. Yeah, yeah, that was so funny. Okay, so we heard a couple of sheep, Raul, Ronald, and Ricky, all following the shepherd until Raul decided that he wasn't following the rest, like sheep. And that's great, he's got a mind of his own, but if the shepherd represents parents, well, then parents usually know best, at least enough to form a good foundation. Right, doctor? Or not? (laughs) (laughs) At least we would hope so. (laughs) I know, right? I think... uh... The idea is that the shepherds are blindly following the staff Mm -hmm. and the direction of the parents. And little kids, that's what we do as kids. We follow our parents and imitate them. So then that means that if we are the shepherds, then we have a big responsibility to guide them and protect them and orient them and Mm -hmm. trace the route that we're going to take as they grow. And part of that then is for us to know when to let them be. <laughs> <laughs> and went to, yeah. And went to pull them back a little bit. Tug it just a little bit. Via social media, I've seen all these uh, videos sometimes of uh, kids that tend to be somewhat rebellious. You know, I was rebellious to a certain point because I obviously feared my parents because I knew there was a consequence. Mm-hmm. But uh, I want to ask Dr. Kelly, you know, there's always that rebellious kid in the family. What advice can you give 
parents with a child who doesn't want to follow their guidance, their rules, etc. <laughs> There's so much complexity yeah. in each given situation. Again, I would I would want to start in every situation though by immediately undoing the power struggle and helping parents understand that rebellion is inherently a power struggle. If you're responding to that power grab with a power grab of your own, you'll only strengthen the rebellion. Number one. Number two, begin to. So it's one thing to say don't don't respond with more power grab. But it's another thing to say, well, then what do I do? And I think the, the thing you can do first is begin to cultivate some sense of empathy for the rebeller. And one of the things that we know about rebellious kids in the family is that sometimes they're telling more truth about the family itself mm-hmm. um, than anyone else in the family. That's why they're seen as the rebel. There's some truths in the family narrative and the way the family's functioning that everyone else is just sort of colluding with and going along with. And the rebel is actually a truth teller. A lot of times the black sheep is the truth teller. Beginning to, to listen to whatever the rebel is saying with their behavior right? What is your rebellion? What language is it speaking? What is it telling me about what you're not willing to go along with in this family? And how can we start to have a conversation about that? And then I actually think of the word obedient. The root of the word obedient is obedir, which means to listen, Mm -hmm. actually, so that when we are obedient, we are listening closely. And unless we're listening closely to the rebel, we can't expect them to listen closely to us either. Um, Unless we are obedient in that sense to them, we can't expect obedience in return. So there's a mutuality to that that needs to be cultivated rather than a power grab. And that's what I would be focusing on. Now, that probably applies more and more as kids age and you get into the teenage years. Sometimes a six-year-old rebels and uh, they just need to do what they're asked to do. But I'm thinking more in terms of that kind of ongoing power struggle that happens as kids age. Mm-hmm. There's also the need, though, a great point in terms of the power grab and the rebelliousness. And I think the rebellion is sometimes that defiance is sometimes and it depends on the situation mm-hmm. and the kid, but it's sometimes propelled by a, a need and that need maybe is not met mm-hmm. and is frustrated. And so then you try to grab that attention of your parent mm-hmm. in another way, just understanding your child and what are their relational needs. What's going on there to, to mm-hmm. see how what's missing or what's bothering the, mm-hmm. the child. Great point. Now, there's also autonomy. At what point do you start respecting the child's new way of thinking or viewing the world? Maybe when they go into adolescence, they think a little differently than... Well, I think at the very beginning, as they start communicating and verbalizing, you mm-hmm. can appreciate where they're coming from and value what they're saying. It doesn't mean that everything that they say is amazing and truth and at the beginning it might be rubbish but you can, you can still honor their their creative thinking process i mean you don't have to overdo it and gloat over it but you can respect where they're coming from and then obviously as they get older and they're thinking more thoughtfully and more intricately then that conversation is obviously more nuanced yeah i think i think that's exactly right i think the kids particularly teenagers will respect our opinions about as much as we respect theirs, even when it differs with us. And my 14-year-old, we have this sort of ongoing battle about video games, you know, and how great he thinks they are and how I think they're ruining the world. And uh, he came to me recently and he said, hey, Dad, would you would you agree that video games are a form of art? And <laughs> I said, you know, I, I said, I think I would. I, I don't think playing video games are a form of art. I think that's consuming art. But I think people who mm-hmm. create video games are creating a form of art. He goes, well, good. Okay. So we agree. We can agree upon that. And wouldn't you say it's good for people to be consuming art? Uh, and, uh, and I said, actually, I, I don't, I don't think all art <laughs> is created equal. And I think, uh, I wouldn't encourage people to consume art that doesn't, doesn't do good things for their heart. Right. He looks at me and he goes, all right. 
pause. I'll be back. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, you know, and so it's like this, it's this ongoing discussion. And, but the reality is in the midst of that discussion, as I'm honoring his opinion and his wisdom, I'm also saying you can only play video games for an hour and a half on the weekend day. So the boundary is still there while the ongoing conversation that honors his heart and his wisdom and, and his autonomy is, is happening. So those two things can happen at the same time in parallel. Yeah, and I love it because we want our kids to learn how to negotiate and how to use their logical thinking sequence. It doesn't mean that they right. have to be convinced and that they win the game at the end, but being able to honor where they're coming from using parts language is sometimes helpful. A part of me agrees with this and the part, you know, so sometimes you can use that kind yes. of language to help you. And, and yeah, and one way one way I'll drive that home to parents is you know when when the kids at school try to convince your kid to to use drugs, mm-hmm. you want them to be really good at negotiating and mm-hmm. being able to articulate their thoughts and their reasons for not doing it. And the only place they're going to get any good practice at that is with you, mm-hmm. right? And so this back and forth discussion, dialogue, negotiation that happens as they grow up, that's preparing them to go out in the world and have a voice and to have boundaries and to make good decisions. And without no it, they they won't be equipped to do that. Dr. Kelly, have you seen this whole framework? this discussion we're having is based on the premise that as parents, we feel comfortable with that holding that tension and being able to have a conversation with differences that we don't agree with. How have you managed in clinical work with parents that just shut down? They really, they have a really hard time going there. You know, they disagree, they disagree. And it's because I said so. And just even engaging in the conversation to them feels like a personal attack. Yes. Well, and I'll honestly, I think in all of my clinical work, I think that's one of the toughest spots for me as a therapist is, you know, a parent who brings in an adolescent and says, fix them, <laughs> you know, um, and is essentially saying, change them to be the way I want them to be so I don't have to, to change anything myself. A significant part of the process in that sort of therapy is is focusing on that dynamic with the parents themselves and to hopefully communicate to the parents that nothing will begin to change until you're willing to enter into the tension of that that negotiation and that conversation. So what's what's stopping you from doing that? It could be any number of things. It could be, well, my parents were authoritarian. It was their way or the highway, and I think that's the way it should be, and I turned out all right. And beginning to model that conversation for the parents with the parents mm-hmm. um, so that they can can then sort of carry that sort of conversation over into their relationship with their kids. But it is tough. And if a parent's not willing to go there, sometimes the therapy can't go anywhere, to be honest with you. Great point. Great information. Preparing today's parents. Very nice. Well, Dr. Alicia and Dr. Kelly Flanagan, thanks for the insightful episode. Now, Dr. Kelly, where can we learn more about you and the work that you do? All right. Thanks for asking. So my uh, website, my blog is drkellyflanagan.com. It's drkellyflanagan.com. You can find Lovable, my book, anywhere the books are sold. You can go read some of the reviews on Amazon, um, but buy it anywhere. You can also go to lovablethebook.com. It's lovabletheBook.com to find out more about it. And uh, I have a podcast uh, right now on iTunes called The Lovable Podcast as well. So a number of different places you can get connected with what I'm talking about. So yeah, thanks for asking. Are you on social media by chance? Yep. Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Google+. I haven't made the leap to Instagram yet, which makes me sort of a fossil. Ah, yeah. I was was actually looking for you right now. There's about uh, 10 million Kelly Flanagan's, just FYI. Okay. Yes. yes, I'm I'm sure there is. Well, you'll find me anywhere in social media under Dr. Kelly Flanagan. It's sort of the way uh, the doctor doesn't mean so much to me, but it does distinguish me from other Kelly Flanagan's in social media. So that I use, it, I use it in social media. There you go. Great book, by the way, Lovable. I'm like, I'm like on a chapter four now, but we'll see. Oh, 
It's, it's beautiful, beautiful. Dr. Alicia, how can parents keep it real even if it means giving them tough love? It's a good question. I love the discussion today. Lots of takeaways. I think when you think of the word tough, automatically maybe you're thinking of what that means for the child. But based on today's conversation, it seems like it was more about the parent. You as a parent being comfortable having difficult conversations. Mm -hmm. You as a parent recognizing, you know, the dance that's happening in the relationship and then being able to pull back and figure out how you can do some more coaching and be a little bit more real with yeah. your kids instead of, you know, doing that blackmailing. I mean, again, I think of that scripture in Corinthians that talks about love and a lot of it is, you know, perseverance, that it doesn't hold on anger and things like that. And when you think about that, that really demands a lot on us as parents to be patient, to persevere, to not hold all this grudge mm -hmm. and hold uh, all this wrongs in our backpack and then be able to pull that and use it to instigate others. And so a lot of that tough love, if you will, is toughening ourselves to be able to have difficult conversations. Again, like Kelly said, to be tender with our kids. So not necessarily, you know, we might have to apply some behavioral consequences that are challenging, but that does not mean that we need to also be tough with our love towards our children. We can always be nurturing and caring while also be firm with the consequences. There you go. Firm with the consequences. Very good. Well, that wraps today's episode of The Struggle is Real. Now, tough love is still love. Remember that. Get an additional uh, resource at familybridgesusa.org. All right. And you can also follow us on social media with the hashtag The Struggle is Real or simply hashtag TSIR. Thanks for listening. We're Veronica Avila. And I am Omar Ramos. And I'm Dr. Alicia Laos. Till next time. This was The Struggle is Real by Family Bridges. For more ideas on parenting, get your copy of The Struggle is Real by Drs. Paul Meyer and Alicia Laos on FamilyBridgesUSA.com.